Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hildy Grossman. Hi, I'm Hildy Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. My friend Jordan is here to introduce our guests. Hildy, today's topic, what are biomarkers and why are they so important in the fight against lung cancer? We've got two great guests today, Joellen Murphy, PhD and a medical science liaison with Foundation Medicine, and somebody you know quite well, Hildy, Jill Feldman. She is a longtime patient and advocate with a story that will touch your heart and remind us all that we're making strides against lung cancer. Welcome, everyone. Today, our podcast is called This Podcast Could Save Your Life. And um, I know that's quite a claim, something that uh, we would like to share with you, the information today. Uh, that perhaps um, may have tremendous benefit to you or someone you know. And um, so our first guest is Jill Feldman, and uh, she's a wonderful person. I know her from my own experience of upstage lung cancer uh, membership in Lung Can, which is a group of lung cancer advocates. She has quite a story to tell and quite a journey. Jill Feldman, I'd love to have you tell your story, quite a a journey. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Hildy. Uh, Good morning, everybody. So my story is a lot different than most people who are diagnosed with lung cancer because it started long before I was diagnosed. When I was 13, I lost two grandparents to lung cancer within weeks of each other, and then Just six months later, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, and he died uh, just a few months later at 41. And then when I was in my 20s, both my mom and my aunt Dee Dee died of lung cancer within, they were sisters and within two and a half years of each other. And so that was back in 2000. At the time, I was trying to get involved in something. And I remember looking for a walk, looking for a support group, looking for an event, and there weren't any. There weren't any organizations dedicated exclusively to lung cancer research. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, It was, you know, I here's the number one cancer killer, and there was absolutely nothing. Well, coincidence or the first organization in the country dedicated to lung cancer research was Longevity Foundation, and it was founded in my community. And so I got involved and it gave me a way to confront a disease that had devastated my family. So I started advocating and educating myself. And at the same time, the other thing I could do was I could advocate for myself. And so when my mom was diagnosed, I had my first CT scan and I decided, you know, well, my doctor and I decided I would do it every three years. And so I first one was great. The second one was great. And then I was busy having children. I have four children. So I waited five years. And at 35 years old, something was found on my scan. It was a small nodule that we kept an eye on for 
three and a half years. And then it took a turn and it got more aggressive. So at the time I, I was diagnosed with lung cancer, I was 39 years old. And my kids were six, eight, 10, and 12. Their only association with the disease was death, obviously. Um, they were scared. And my, you know, fear was becoming a reality. I was following in my family's footsteps. And at the time, there still wasn't any promising research that convinced me that my path would be any different. And I also happened to be president of Longevity Foundation at the time. So I, I, I had the knowledge. Um, you know, one thing I do have to say, though, even though I had the knowledge and I had these relationships with people within the lung cancer world, it was still emotionally very different when I, you know, was diagnosed myself. And so I went, you know, kind of with the motions of going to the doctors. It was stage one. I was able to have surgery. I was considered cured. And so back in 2009, the only biomarkers that they tested for were KRAS and EGFR. So my doctors wanted to test for the biomarkers and they tested and it, the cancer was EGFR positive. So just to set the stage a little bit, there wasn't a first line therapy approved to even treat stage one lung cancer or stage four lung cancer that was EGFR positive. And so stage one, they weren't even thinking about, you know, really using adjuvant therapy after somebody is diagnosed. But there was one study that just had gotten off the ground out east, and they were putting stage one surgical patients on an EGFR therapy after surgery, hoping to reduce reduce the high rate of reoccurrence in early stage lung cancer. And so it was out East. I live in the Chicago area. I had four little kids. So I really could not be going back and forth to participate in the trial. But my, my doctor and I decided that uh, I should try to take the adjuvant therapy, uh, what they call off-label, so not being a part of the trial. And so I did for about a year and a half, and it worked. It's In fact, I it was the only time in the past 12 years I haven't had cancer. But once I went off of it, there was new growth on my scan. And again, you know, two and a half years later, after my first surgery, they thought, okay, it's another primary. So I had surgery and I was considered cured again. At that time, it was almost 2012. They were only testing for EGFR, KRAS, and ELK. And so again, it was EGFR positive, but I we didn't do any therapy after surgery and we really didn't have time to even think about it because 
On my follow-up scan after that, there was more growth. And then there continued to be more growth. So at that point, the doctors looked at the pathology of both resections and were able to determine that I did not have two primary cancers, that they were the same cancer. And we realized at that point that it was the same disease. And it was really hard for me because I thought I was the story of hope, the, you know, early detection, the poster child for early detection. And I wasn't. And so it was a letdown for me, but I also felt like as an advocate, the whole lung cancer community, because as we all know, you know, we, we need hope in the community. Um, but what we realized as well is the disease was contained to my chest. So while it was more advanced than we thought, I, you know, I was still a story of hope. I, we were able to manage the cancer as a chronic disease. And the way we've done it and the way we did it then was we watched and waited. And it's such a hard thing emotionally to do for a patient. Again, thankfully, I had the knowledge. And so I knew that we could watch the nodules that were growing in the lungs. And when they got aggressive, it was a decision whether to go back on a targeted therapy or not. And at the time in 2013, one, the targeted therapy I was on after surgery was just approved for first-line therapy in advanced patients. And I had horrible side, on, side effects on it. And so we decided to use targeted radiation, stereotactic body radiation therapy, and treat the aggressive nodules. And it worked. I was fortunate. We treated three ag aggressive nodules over almost a five-year period of time. And then a couple of years ago, I had more progression, again, thankfully, just in the lungs. But at that point, uh, radiation was not the smartest tool to use. In fact, it... Um, it wasn't the best option for me. So I was able to have some great conversations with my doctors and there were new targeted therapies in the toolbox for EGFR positive cancer. So I, it was a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended, but at that point I went back on targeted therapy. And I have to say that it was the first time I was when I that I had progression that I was not overcome with fear because there was hope. And there was hope with the targeted therapy that I could go on. And there was hope with research in general in the pipeline. And so knock on wood, I have been on that targeted therapy for two years. 
and just about two years and everything has been stable and I hope that I can stay on it and it will continue working for a very, very long time. But when and when it does, when the cancer develops acquired resistance, uh, I, I, again, I have more hope than ever with the way researches and sciences and being able to see what's driving that resistance, hopefully something else that another treatment that could target that resistance. So that is my story in a nutshell, a very long and complicated story, but um, it's, it's a story of hope still, I believe. It is a story of hope. It's, um, it's an amazing story and that you've had so much experience with lung cancer in your family is just, um, it's, it's a stunning uh, situation. And I don't know how much conversation you had with your family. I don't know if there was any discussion with, uh, you know, primary care doctors, family doctors, that this was going on. Um, I'm wondering at the time all this was happening, if there was any kind of uh, just general conversation about that. Nobody talked about lung cancer back then. Um, you know, the, the, there was a stigma that was associated with the disease. And so it was really, it was, well, they were former smokers and that, that was it. It, there was no other discussion. And I remember vividly when my aunt was actually diagnosed before my mom, and she actually had two surgical cures that were considered surgical cures. And then my mom was diagnosed and died pretty quickly. And then my aunt developed a third cancer after my mom and died um, a year and a half later. But so during that time when my mom was diagnosed, I kept saying to doctors, and again, we're talking, this is 20 years ago, um, but still, there, this cannot be a coincidence. You have my dad and his dad, you have my mom, her sister, and their mom. Um, there has to be something else going on. 90% of people who do have a smoking history do not get lung cancer. So we cannot just turn to an easy out. Cancer is complicated. There is no simple cause and effect. But the problem was that it was woefully underfunded lung cancer research. And again, part of it has to do with the stigma. People felt that it was a self-inflicted disease. But the other part of it had to do with people didn't live long enough to advocate. There were three treatment options. There was surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And in the late 1990s is when combination therapy was approved. And at times, even oncologists thought that the effects of treatment were worse than the disease itself and only provided minimal benefit. So it was really in the dark ages. But I 
thankfully there was one pulmonologist and our, I guess, family practitioner, if you will, who thankfully thought that, okay, there's something more here. And they were the ones who actually pushed me to get periodic scans. And so that, that is what I did. But as we all know, there, it, there is no universal cost-effective non-invasive early detection tool. So I was able to do it knowing, you know, kind of being educated about scans and if something's found. But it was just one of those things that, and it still is a little bit where people aren't educated enough about lung cancer to understand the other risk factors involved. And certainly familial lung cancer is not studied well yet. If I can jump in and ask Joe Ellen to comment, a uh, very moving and, and stunning story. I think you're right about that word, Hildy. Joe Ellen, uh, catch us up on where we are with the research and, and how things have progressed. And her story, Jill's story is so dramatic, but there are definitely strides being made. Can you give us an update? Yeah, certainly. Um, first, I want to thank um, Hildy Upstage Lung Cancer for the invitation to join the podcast. This is really an honor. And special thanks to Jill for sharing her story. Ironically, I've been working in the personalized medicine field for about 10 years now. So some of your story parallels my experience in this field, though I've been in as a scientist. It's really remarkable. Um, when I started, as you said, we could only test a handful of genes for patients. I started in this field working directly with patients, um, and we could only test a handful of biomarkers, the term used very broadly, um, as you so nicely summarized. But we've now, in a matter of just over 10 years, evolved to the point where we can do hundreds of biomarkers at a time. Um, people can have their whole genome sequencing sequence. That it's just remarkable. And part of this is driven by the research. It's also driven by the changes in technology, which have been just incredible. Just incredible. We're, we're using some terms that um, maybe many people have heard before. Um, maybe they're confusing, and maybe some of you have not heard any of these terms before. So there's, you know, there are genomes, there's genetics, there's biomarkers. What the heck is all this stuff? I'm sorry about that, Ilti. Sometimes I slip into jargon, but it's good to be reminded that not everyone knows what these mean. Um, in terms of, let me start with the difference between genetics versus genomics. So genetics basically refers to sort of all the cells in your body and the possibility that something, um, you may have inherited something, genetic risk, which is what Jill talked about. Um, her family, it does not seem that this could be coincidence. The evidence is just too compelling. Genomics is basically the study of the DNA or the basic components of the cell in a way that allows us to understand what it is that's potentially driving the growth of the tumor cell. When you talk about biomarkers, what does that actually mean? So you can think about biomarkers as being like components or parts in a tumor cell that basically favor the growth of the cell and allow it to escape growth control. 
we often used to use the analogy of a car when describing this to patients. You understand, you put your foot on the pedal, the car goes. If you want to stop, you push the brakes. Um, if those any parts of those system fails, then you lose control of the car. If you think of tumor cells as basically having components of a car, the trick is to understand and diagnose what's wrong with the tumor cell, what's allowing that tumor cell to grow, and then figure out what therapy might be most appropriate. This is how this whole concept of personalized medicine came to be. Um, you'll hear the term personalized medicine, but you'll also hear precision medicine. And the precision part of it grew out of the technology that enabled us to do this kind of testing on patients' tumors. At Foundation Medicine, we refer to this as comprehensive genomic profiling. So the idea is you take the patient's tissue and test that to identify what the alterations are that's allowing the tumor to grow. You can also do this by looking at circulating tumor DNA, which may be present in the bloodstream. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. Upstage Lung Cancer exclusively uses music and the performing arts to get the word out about lung cancer. Through concerts and activities, Upstage helps fund much-needed research. As the saying goes, find it, treat it, beat it. Please subscribe to this podcast series and tell your friends. Oh, and if you'd like to join our efforts, consider a donation of any amount at upstagelungcancer.org. And now, back to the podcast. Well, I'm also a lung cancer survivor, along with Jill. I was very lucky. It was found by accident. And um, I was stage one. I had no symptoms. It was just I tripped. (laughs) And it started this whole crazy sequence of events, which um, talked about uh, before and is on our Upstage Lung Cancer website, uh, that whole story. We all have stories, and I think that's the point. Um, it's not, I, I always sort of, you know, I always feel a little odd talking about the cancer patient because there's a person, there's a cancer, the, the person with cancer. When I was diagnosed, um, I was, I had uh, surgery and that was it. Thankfully, it has not recurred yet. And so I hope never. Um, so that was, that was great. But I did ask my uh, oncologist at the time, uh, some some years later, actually. So I was diagnosed in, or I had surgery in 2007. And I asked my oncologist some years later, uh, so did, did, did they say what, what kind of mutation there was in the tumor? And she said, well, they didn't test at that point. And you don't need it. If we need to do it at some point, we will. So I guess I found that somewhat reassuring, but it also... Um, made it really clear how far we are coming. We're not, we're not there yet. And so mentioning the whole notion of early detection, that's, that's our whole uh, raison d'être. How do you like my accent? <laughs> I Julie? love it. I love it when you speak <clears throat> French, Hildy. Jill, uh, your story, is, as we've said over and over again, is so compelling. And you're a living, breathing, thriving, beautiful example of success in this area. But you also mentioned you have four children. And I can't even imagine what you and your husband thought about, mused over, and what you even think about today. Would you reflect on the future generation that you're bringing into this world? Yes, definitely. I, you know, my biggest thing was I didn't want my kids to ever 
go through what I went through, losing, you know, both parents and by the time they're in their 20s, but, you know, especially losing an parent at a young age. That was my number one. My number two was I didn't want them to ever have to go through what I went through in terms of a lung cancer diagnosis. And so I thought for sure by this point, uh, we would have a way to be able to kind of stratify and understand who would be at higher risk and who wouldn't be. And we don't. And so in any other cancer, when, or most other cancers, I should say that if screening, people are supposed to get screened 10 years younger than when their parent, something is first found on their parent. So that would mean my kids would start screening at 25. Um, well, you know, 12 years later, my 12 year old is 24. And nobody can give me an answer. Nobody can say what he should do. And I've asked many oncologists, I've asked many researchers, and I get different responses. And I think the most important thing is I'm going to have to and I started, I have started talking with all of them about that and what it would look like, but they have to make their own decisions. And so I think that's what's really difficult for me is that we don't have that yet. And again, a lot of real well-known, um, respectable physicians have said to me, well, you know, you don't necessarily have to, they don't necessarily have to be scanned so early. They've grown up in a healthy environment. And I want to share those something that, you know, and this is what I share with physicians when they say that to me. I said, yes. I said, but let me tell you something. I have a brother who is 18 months older than I am exactly. We come from the same exact mold. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 19, so a little different, but he has been rolling and smoking his own cigarettes since he's been 17. So if you want to talk about risk factors, you put my brother and me right there. He is thousand time fold higher risk at developing lung cancer than I ever was, but I have lung cancer. He doesn't. So that's where I struggle. And I think I just have to have those conversations with my kids and, you know, my husband as well. We try to talk to them about it, but ultimately as adults, they will have to make their own decisions. I was just going to say, um, I won't name the person, <laughs> But one of the major lung cancer advocates who has a big organization would say right up front, get those kids scanned. Absolutely. Don't even think twice. You know, um, I, I love the oncologists and radiologists and all the people who work in this area. They have such big hearts and they're so, their work is so hard. 
Um, so I'm not, there's nothing negative, but there are a lot of pressures about keeping expenses down and you don't want to have false positives and all these kinds of things. And I always say, I, I personally would prefer to run the risk. <laughs> this is just a personal, I'm not endorsing anything. And, but my, my own feeling is I'd rather run that risk. And if there's a false positive, well, I'll deal with it rather than saying, oh, it's going to be fine. Let's right. just, you know, wait and wait and wait and see. Mm -hmm. um, on another podcast uh, that we talked about, I I knew someone who also had, you know, lung cancer in the family, um, her mother, her grandmother, uh, it was there. And the doctors just thought, well, at the time, her doctor said, you know, just wait, wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. And so it was three or four years later that she finally got a scan and it was stage 3B, which is advanced. And so, again, there's no blame in any of this. I think everyone is trying to find their way as best they can. And this whole notion, again, coming back to this notion that this podcast could save your life is that um, I, I wanted to share two stories that I had. One was, this was, I don't know, I'm really terrible with time. So let's say 10 years ago, I knew a, a gynecologist whose wife had pancreatic cancer. And at that point, um, it was just dire, just dire. And so he did everything. He researched and researched and researched. And he and a colleague got together and said, well, she also has a BRCA gene. So I wonder if we gave her a, a breast cancer drug, if that would help. And lo and behold, it was miraculous. She thrived on that drug. Gives me chills just to recount this story. And so I never forgot that. And this was well before this is much more of a popular idea that you might think about your own mutation and try to target that mutation with the right drug. Um, but I had two friends. One, um, I had been at a meeting, just as a happenstance of this meeting, they were talking about neuroendocrine presence in lung cancer and in many lung cancers. So I just, you know, it's like, all right, I listened to this story, you know, you file information. And I had a very good friend who had had breast cancer and then developed a neuroendocrine tumor. And so uh, this was always my point. <laughs> and that is like, how pushy do you want to be with a friend? Right? I mean, I, I think you have to balance when you love someone and care about them deeply, you have to balance respecting them with your own, you know, do something, do something. So at some point I said, I recounted the story of hearing this. And I said, could you just ask your doctors if a lung cancer drug might actually be helpful here? So I tried and I, I actually don't know where that, that went. Um, ultimately, she did not survive her cancer. But these are the things that I think we're trying to talk about going forward. And it's about trying to give any listener, right now you may not have cancer, you may never have cancer, but the chances are probably close to zero that you will not have someone in your family, in your friendship circle, someone you know, have cancer. It's just 
that rampant and part of it is we're living longer and probably for a lot of reasons. So knowing that you can do this kind of um, uh, evaluation of the tumor, looking at those biomarkers, as Joellen said, now there are hundreds that can be looked at, not three or four. And so that may change the course of your therapy or someone you love's therapy. Thoughts about that, Joellen? Absolutely. Compared to when I started and when Jill started her journey, there's now more than 95 targeted therapies that have been approved. So the sort of on-label versus off-label concept um, in more than 25 different types of cancer. And we also have these pan-tumor approvals. One of the things that we've learned over time by doing this type of CGP testing is that an alteration that may have historically been associated with a tumor type, for example, breast cancer, can actually be found in other tumor types. BRCA is a great example. BRCA genes are associated with multiple tumor types. And another important component of this is that sort of potential for an inherited risk factor versus the tumor alterations, which we refer to as somatic alterations. BRCA alterations don't necessarily, they're not necessarily inherited. They can occur in tumors as a somatic alteration, meaning characteristic of the tumor, and those treatments work. So understanding through this sort of broader approach to the CGP, comprehensive genomic, genomic profiling, is that just because a patient's disease started in a specific organ doesn't mean that the genes that are identified and the potential therapeutic strategies available are just for that tissue type. It's a really important distinction. It's an important distinction, and it feels like that's where we're driving forward, that it's going to be less organ-based and more genomic profiling, biomarker testing, trying to see what the best match uh, to be the most precise medicine for the particular mutation. So, oh, yeah, you bring up such a great point, Joellen, because in the community, people get really confused about the difference between having some type of alteration in the cancer as opposed to in their, you know, blood and their hereditary risk. And within lung cancer, the only one we know about is T790M. And so even within the EGFR community, when people talk about T790M mutation, they have a hard time understanding there is a difference between whether it's in the cancer or whether it's in your DNA. And so I wish there was more education out there about that, because I think a lot of the reason many people don't have biomarker testing, they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to lose their insurance if something is found, because automatically in their minds, especially when all these different words are used, like genomic and mutation. In their mind, if something shows up, then it could affect their insurance or could affect their family and they don't know if they want to know. So that is one of the barriers for biomarker testing. 
I'm not a black and white person, but there are two types of people. There are people who go toward things and there are people who run away from things. Mm -hmm. And so that's very simplistic. So there are going to be people who want to know and want to know as soon as possible. And then there are people who don't. And I think that's what you're describing. I had a uh, a former, my my mentor, my professor in graduate school who wound up with kidney cancer, and I was having a discussion about how quickly you could find out after you have a scan, like what's going on. And I said, I need to know like within mm-hmm. an hour, let me know. Come on, let's go. Yeah. And he said, no, if it's two or three weeks, it's fine. So th- there are people who go toward and people who go away. But I am I am here to say And Jill, you're here to say, of course, Joellen too, um, that it's if you can catch some of these things early, the earliest you can find um, any kind of cancer, the sooner you can start treatment and have a much greater uh, potential for a long and and happy life that just may be more like uh, having a... um, you know, a, a, a disease that just continues for the rest of your life, but does not take your life. So it's about yeah. not letting fear guide your decisions. This concept of early detection, this is a rapidly emerging area for oncology, personalized precision medicine. It's one that we're very excited about, partly because of the potential impact for patients. So you think about like Jill's family, this concept of being able to detect early Um, And also this idea that you can do this using non-invasive technologies is critical. For example, Foundation Medicine is currently working to develop two different tests that will enable the oncologist to look at circulating tumor DNA, so present in the bloodstream. Um, That'll enable us to determine if a treatment is working, sort of a, a monitoring concept, or whether a patient is high risk of relapse similar thing, but without the need to do a tissue biopsy, which can be critical for some patients who may not be well, can't undergo the procedure. Um, This kind of monitoring approach and early detection approach is, it's coming, like imminent. And I think it has a potential to have a huge impact on the field. Well, that's really, again, this is upstage lung cancer's focus is early detection. But I wonder, is that something that would be available for Jill's children? And in other words, just have a blood test and take a look and see if there's anything going on. I think it's not quite there yet, but the pace at which it's moving from my perspective is pretty remarkable. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, I think across the globe, people are trying to understand, partly because you can improve the patient's life. Um, for patients who know they're at risk, you give them that peace of mind that they need. For Jill's family, I think it's um, absolutely critical. But also this idea, if you can treat patients sooner, you can potentially, quote unquote, cure their disease, mm-hmm. um, or put them into a position where it's stable and monitor them for multiple years. So hopefully, this is where this evolves to. But it all gets back to this concept of um, first patients need to be tested to understand what it is that's going on. Early detection did not result in a cure for me. But 12 years later, 
we are managing the cancer. So I think that is a really good point in terms of if you can monitor a patient. I always, I, I say to my cousin all the time, even one of my youngest daughter, um, we were talking about COVID and scarring on the lungs. And I actually, my 20 year old had COVID when she first went back to school. She saw her primary care doctor in early December. And I told her, you talk, it's my primary care doctor. I said, talk to her about getting a scan. I want you to have a baseline. And she said, okay. And she got a scan and they found a ground glass nodule in her lower right lobe. Now only one. So I was like, oh my, usually with COVID, you know, you kind of find a cluster, but uh, thankfully she totally just kind of laughed and said, of course they did. And she will follow up in six months with another scan. But my youngest was like, oh my gosh, if I get COVID, I'm not going to get a scan. I said, why, why are you saying that? She goes, what if they find something? I said, Maya, if something's there, they're going to find it eventually. Wouldn't you rather they find it early? And I think that is what the message that for the people who are afraid, that is the message that I give. They're going to find it. Wouldn't you rather they find it early? And with the biomarker testing, I say, if you're going to have it and you're going to have treatment, wouldn't you want the treatment that's going to allow you to live longer and better than just settling with any treatment they throw at you? And I think it, you know, like you said before, Hildy, I think it is just a mindset out of fear. And so just kind of putting it into a different context sometimes can help. Well, I want to say thank you to my wonderful guests, Jill Feldman, Joellen Murphy, um, for this wonderful discussion, this important discussion. It is a discussion that could save your life. Um, I think the message goes full, you know, full circle to where we started, Jill, which is this is a message about hope and not to let fear make those kinds of decisions for you, um, to, to use your hope to look forward, to be knowledgeable, to ask for what makes sense to you if you're in this kind of situation and, um, and to know that every year things get better. We get mm -hmm. better uh, treatments, we get better diagnostics, hopefully, and that's what we're working for at Upstage Lung Cancer so hard. So thank you again. Thank you, Jordan, always my wonderful co-host, and uh, we will see you at the next podcast. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.